The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education, and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now, here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. I am very pleased today to have as our guest William Bill White, who is a senior research consultant at Chestnut Hill Systems. He's the past chair of the Board of Recovery Communities United and a volunteer consultant to Faces and Voices of Recovery. Bill has a master's degree in addiction studies from Goddard College and has worked full-time in the addictions profession since 1969. As a street worker, counselor, clinical director, trainer, and researcher, Bill also authored or co-authored more than 300 articles, monographs, and research items and book chapters and 14 books. And most of you are probably aware of his book, Slaying the Dragon, which is the history of addiction treatment and recovery in America. And um, welcome to our show, Bill. I'm really Happy and excited that you took the time to join us today to talk about American cultural recovery. Thanks, Mary. It's really good to be here with you. Um, I guess we could begin by talking a little bit about what is the American culture of recovery and um, how is it different from other types of cultures? Yeah, I first began uh, writing about the whole concept of culture of recovery in the late 80s and early 1990s, and at that time it was a very simple concept. I referred to community of recovery as if it was one very homogenous community, and I referred to culture of recovery at that time as almost being synonymous with 12-step uh, recovery in the United States. Uh, and, that, and that pretty much reflected the sort of state of recovery at that point in time and, and for decades preceding it. What's really fascinating to me is what's happened in the past two decades is that that culture has virtually exploded. We've seen a tremendous diversification of recovery mutual aid groups, um, the, the philosophical diversification of those groups. We're seeing secular recovery support groups of many varieties. We're seeing a lot of explicitly religious uh, recovery support groups. We're seeing uh, medication-assisted support groups like Methadone Anonymous. Um, And then we're seeing uh, this dramatic expansion of sort of new recovery support institutions. Uh, We've seen um, the the, the growth of recovery homes and recovery industries and recovery schools, uh, growing numbers of recovery ministries and even recovery churches. Uh, we're seeing all kinds of new recovery-based media, including this own, this particular radio program we're a part of. Uh, we're seeing lots of new recovery magazines, an explosion of recovery literature. And then there's sort of a larger organizing framework that we refer to as this new recovery advocacy movement, which really began in the late 1990s in terms of this explosion of new grassroots recovery advocacy organizations and kind of came together 
uh, in 2001 with the founding of Faces and Voices of Recovery is sort of the kind of a national leader uh, of, of that movement. So we've seen lots and lots of activity in that time. So now we're starting to talk about uh, uh, communities of recovery as opposed to a community of recovery. Uh, and we're talking about a culture of recovery that now has uh, many, many very diverse elements of it. I think that um, one of the things that has kind of defined this is the whole concept of recovery. From what are we recovering from? Because mm-hmm. as you said earlier, it was basically around the 12th step um, organizations and, and self-help groups. But this whole notion of recovery is, is more than that, isn't it? You know, it's interesting because uh, the, re- the concept of recovery is a very musty concept. It goes back well into the 17 and early 1800s in terms of addiction recovery. Uh, but we, we've never really had recovery as a, as a major organizing paradigm for the addictions field like, we, like as, as is emerging right now. And, and the concept actually emerged, and then all of a sudden people said, wait a minute, what is this concept called recovery? And we, so we had CSAT and a number of state agencies and the Betty Ford Institute come together and really bring researchers and recovery advocates and clinicians and people and families in recovery together uh, to sort of wrestle and struggle with that definition. And it's intriguing because uh, it sounds like it would be very simple to define recovery uh, since some of us have talked about it in our personal lives for decades but it actually touches on some of the most controversial issues in the, in the field itself. Uh, the Betty Ford Institute uh, that I was a part of in terms of, of doing their consensus conference on recovery uh, came up with uh, a three-part definition that includes uh, sort of three requirements. One is sobriety. The second one is global health, uh, global defined in terms of physical, emotional, uh, relational health, spiritual health, and then the, four, the third category is citizenship. So it, it is intriguing. We are now just beginning to try to define recovery so uh, we can be very clear when people are using it what, we, what, we're, what we're meaning by it. I'm wondering in looking at those three uh, categories, um, is it possible that as the more we try to define it, the more kind of nebulous it's going to become because I know people (laughs) with long-term recovery who, in terms of citizenship, um, they don't really see that they have a role in that, you know, that they're very much entrenched in the whole concept of um, anonymity and upholding the the traditions of their self-help group so that they, they don't really partake in citizenship. Yeah, the, it's, 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 sort of a, it's, it's sort of different across, uh, across drug choices and what the legal status of your primary drug was. In the, within the history of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, they've generally framed sort of citizenship. The closest they've come to it is sort of the, the giving back through sponsorship and other service work. But that service work has been determined primarily within the fellowship, and primarily service to other people in recovery. Uh, what's happening when you begin to, to talk about recovery, particularly for the illicit drugs, is the, the legal status of those drugs meant that there were lots of people through their addiction years who did uh, very great injury to their community. And by the way, that's not to say that people 
who were dependent on alcohol having also done a great deal of injury to their communities as well. But particularly with the illicit drugs, we have a lot more predatory criminal activity associated with it in terms of particularly within the larger community beyond the family. And so there was a kind of sense when we began to talk about this that people said, you know, we, we, we've done great injury to the community as part of the disorder, and part of recovery must be uh, sort of making amends and, and, and repaying the community for some of that injury and making restitution for that. So this, this sense of a larger participation in the community, uh, a larger repair of injury that may have been done to the community, I think is just now emerging into kind of consciousness. Um, the culture of recovery, um, can you define a little bit more about the culture part of it? What do you see? How is this culture different from, um, I don't know, any other type of, of culture that we, we have? Yeah, when I first started writing about it, I really defined it uh, sort of juxtaposed against the culture of addiction. And I said there's a culture of addiction and it has its own language and values and rituals and symbols and music uh, and institutions and highly specialized roles, and that people can become as addicted to that culture and all the elements of that culture as they can to the drugs that are a centerpiece of that culture. And then I said that when people... Uh, confront uh, the pain and consequences of their addiction and begin to seek a recovery experience. That for many of them, it's a it's a it's a it's a deeply interpersonal journey, but it's also a cultural journey, meaning it's a journey between two very different physical and cultural worlds. So then I began to talk about there's you know a long history of a culture of recovery in the United States. Um, that also has its own language and values and rituals, et cetera, and that in many cases what we're doing, and particularly doing in the framework of treatment and recovery mutual aid, is helping people disengage from the culture of addiction and shed the elements of that culture and, 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 then, and then connect with the culture of recovery. And I also suggested the concept that people that were deeply enmeshed in this culture of addiction, uh, may need at least for a while to be as deeply enmeshed in a culture of recovery to fill that incredible vacuum and void when the individual enters recovery. So when we're looking at um, the culture per se, we're, we're just trying to define more so what, is, what health is, what wellness is, what good interpersonal relationships are as opposed to what people experience when they're um, in the throes of their addiction. Absolutely. Um, when we look at recovery, I mean, there have been many, as you documented in Slaying the Dragon, there's been many attempts at uh, mutual uh, aid groups over the years and going mm -hmm. back to um, almost the time of the American Revolution. Yeah, even further, we've now pushed that back to about the 1730s in terms of uh, Native American recovery circles. So, yes, there's a, we have this very, very long tradition of recovery mutual aid societies going from the Native American uh, cultural revitalization movement um, all the way through the Washingtonians and 
the ribbon reform clubs and the fraternal temperance societies. Uh, some of my favorites, the United Order of Ex-Boozers and the Drunkards Club and other such groups. So there's, and, a, there's a lot of, of pre-AA recovery mutual aid societies that, that and, were part of this early cultural development. And do they all have certain things in common with the um, current view in terms of sobriety, global health, and citizenship? Yes, you know, I think there's a there's a sense uh, when you go back and read even the earliest of those that everybody understood that you know recovery is more than the the absence of alcohol and drugs from an otherwise unchanged life. Uh, almost all of them framed there was this larger sense of of health and personal development uh, that 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 has to go on. Even though there's there's sort of different emphasis in some of those, uh, obviously when you move from secular frameworks to very religious frameworks to spiritual frameworks, there were differences, but but they share that broader sense that uh, recovery is more than not drinking or using drugs. Um, and we'll be right back to talk more about the culture of recovery with William White. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Janine Marks, a 12-year-old, was fairly normal. She spent a lot of time online. One day, she met a new friend. The new friend had the same problems at home. They liked the same bands. They worried about the same subjects in school. They promised to keep each other's secrets. They wished they went to the same junior high. The new friend had good news. He said he was going to be in Janine's area one Saturday. He thought it would be amazing if they could just hang out, go to the mall. Janine agreed. The new friend didn't want parents messing this up. Janine showed up alone. So did her new friend, who wasn't in junior high wasn't nice. 
and wasn't a 14-year-old boy. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Help delete online predators. Call 1-800-THE-LOST or visit CyberTipLine.com to learn how to protect your kids' online life. A message from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Ad Council. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with William White about the culture of recovery. If you have any questions for Bill, please call in. I'm sure he would love to answer them. We talked in our last segment a little bit about um, new recovery support institutions, such as recovery homes and recovery schools, Um, and maybe you could just talk a little bit more about what they are and how they differ from traditional mutual aid groups. Yeah, it's it's interesting because a lot of them spring, or interest in them has really sprung out of a new institution that's called the sort of recovery community organizations. And these aren't the traditional recovery fellowships, but they're also not professionally directed addiction treatment. They're sort of a new breed of organization that sort of mixes recovery advocacy and peer recovery support services. And one of the things that they're doing is they're sort of assessing needs of people in long-term recovery and particularly looking at needs that may not be met, currently met, by either addiction treatment or recovery fellowships. And some of the kind of things that we're seeing in terms of institutional development, um, perhaps we could start with recovery homes. Um, you know, issues of sober housing are, are, are gigantic issues, particularly for people who've been very deeply enmeshed in drug cultures, where most of their social relationships are drug-related. They may also come from very drug-saturated physical environments. So trying to create a physical place or a sanctuary where people can recover is really critical. And we used to do that historically through things called halfway houses and three-quarter-way houses that were sort of staff-run and pretty dependent upon federal or state funding. What's, what's essentially new is this emergence of a recovery home, uh, most of which do not receive federal or state money. They're sort of democratically run. Most of them are financially self-supported. Uh, we just did a survey of those in the city of Philadelphia, for example, and found about 250 recovery homes in that city that, that house on any given day up to 1,500 women and men in recovery. Uh, nationally, the largest network of these uh, is the Oxford House Network of Recovery Homes in the United States, but that's part of a much larger story of this recovery home movement. And, and particularly the Oxford Houses have been very vigorously, rigorously evaluated, and, and we see a very high sobriety rate uh, for individuals in, the, in those homes, including people with very chronic and complex addiction histories, and including those that also have severe co-occurring psychiatric disorders. So it's sort of, if you picture what are some of the other needs, it's sort of like, okay, I'm sober, now what do I do? How do I live? Where do I live? So the recovery home is filling part of that need, 
And then we say, well, to, to stay in the recovery home, you have to go to work. I mean, you have to pay rent. So where do I get the income to do that, which taps into all the employment issues for people, particularly people that may not have had extensive legitimate employment histories uh, prior to their entrance into recovery. So we're getting these sort of, you know, employment co-ops that are run by recovering people for recovering people uh, that help people generate a legitimate work, work history and allow them to then later mainstream into the, into the workforce. We also have uh, people who are uh, very interested in returning to school or maybe started school but had their school, particularly college, interrupted or high school interrupted well, you know, during their addiction years. So we're getting recovery schools, particularly at the high school level, and then we're getting a growing number of collegiate and university-based recovery programs. And I've been very fascinated by these. These are sort of uh, mini-recovery communities uh, inside pretty abstinence-hostile environments. If you could, I think that would yeah. be a fairly apt description of a college and university environment today. And, and I'm, I'm equally amazed at how well these individuals are doing in terms of maintaining recovery in that environment. And, uh, and also maintaining academic excellence in that environment. And then, and then we can extend from sort of the homes and employment and schools um, into, uh, particularly into the religious ministries. This is a huge change. Uh, in my travels in the 1980s, I must say that I didn't see many churches with their doors wide open to people who were addicted or people with HIV. And yet here we are two decades later where many of those same churches have very uh, assertive uh, recovery ministries, uh, running recovery support groups in their churches. Some of them have recovery-focused pastors. And we even have some churches where the whole identity of the church is around the identity of people in recovery. So this is a pretty remarkable, it's almost like if you think of that addiction treatment and, to a lesser extent, recovery mutual aid was really focusing on kind of the intrapersonal, intrapersonal lifestyle issues related to recovery. And this is really about sort of building a physical, social, cultural world where people can recover in. Um, That's a pretty remarkable development historically. Um, typically, all these different organizations and recovery support groups, are they all AA-based? Are there any that are doing something different? Than yeah, Mary, this is, that's an excellent question because traditionally the way a lot of these kind of things, if I went back to the halfway house movement, for example, um, a lot of those were developed uh, by individuals who were in recovery within a 12-step, particularly AA framework. Although it wasn't done, you know, this was not an AA uh, operation. It was very AA-oriented because of the philosophies that people brought uh, personally to that. What's, new, what's really new right now uh, historically is that you're getting a number of these organizations that come together and they bring people together from, from very diverse pathways of recovery uh, who may share very different personal philosophies around recovery, but they're coming together to advocate on behalf of needs of individuals and families in recovery. So in terms of the advocacy work, we're seeing AA members and NA members 
Marching Next to People from Women in Sobriety, a secular organization for sobriety, Life Ring Secular Recovery, Celebrate Recovery, Alcoholics for Christ, and on and on. And, and, and they're, they're marching in these not as representatives of those individual fellowships, but basically sharing a new identity of individuals and families in long-term recovery. And that's pretty new. And the implication of that, for example, of people who work as recovery coaches and an implication for addiction treatment providers and addiction professionals is that we must all become very fluent in these multiple pathways of recovery and the language and cultures that surround them. So uh, we've got a long history of recovery. We've got a long history of some of these specialty institutions. But to create institutions that embrace people from very diverse pathways of recovery uh, uh, within the same framework or or facilities, that's, that's fundamentally new. Um, what's really um, striking as you're talking is that I'm almost wondering if what we are on kind of the cusp of this people, this whole notion of recovery transcending whatever mutual aid society that you've you've kind of found your um, you've changed your life and you've got your recovery and you've become abstinent and it's almost like we're going at the beginning of a, of a higher level of you know, you're being defined more by your recovery as opposed to the group that you belong to. It's, yes, absolutely. Is that correct, or am I off base? No, I, that's, I, Mary, I think that's a very accurate summary of what's going on right now. And that's not to say that people don't have great loyalty and great affection and deep gratitude for the particular pathway uh, that they attribute to their own recovery. But I think there's a maturity within the recovery community where it's sort of the fact that someone else recovers in a different way uh, is no longer a threat to my personal recovery. And I think that's replicated, you know, widely across the United States. And that and it's sort of this notion that was, is very pervasive within Faces and Voices of Recovery that says there are multiple pathways of long-term recovery and all are cause for celebration. And, and I think that that's something to um, be very hopeful about. One of the... Um, things that I experienced personally early on in the recovery kind of movement prior to Faces and Voices in, in the beginning was as an addiction professional, you were almost ostracized that, like, this is just for the consumers of the treatment and maybe maybe some family members, but as an addiction professional, you really didn't have a place there. And it struck me that, you know, I spend, like, eight hours a day, 40 days a week working with people. This is a good part of my life, but yet... And some level, I'm not supposed to um, join that or, or my joining that would make it less than or something. And I never quite understood that. Yeah, one of the things that's, I mean, I think part of the maturity of the, the recovery movement in the United States is, is that movement is, first of all, um, deeply embracing family members and, and the whole concept of family recovery and inviting families in but they're also inviting friends and allies into that movement and, and, and respecting their participation. I think there's also a, uh, a, 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 there's a growing body of research that really reinforces, for example, that within the addictions professional world, 
that recovery status alone is not a credential for effective, you know, addiction counseling measured by recovery outcomes. That recovery status alone is not a predictor of effectiveness in that realm. We have people who are in recovery who are very effective in terms of helping people initiate and sustain recovery. And we have people that in recovery who are horribly ill-prepared and lacking skills to do that. And at the same time, we have professionals in also in both of those categories. So I think there's a recognition. But I think if there's, if I was going to pull anything, any central theme out of that or lesson, it, it sort of says there's a level of sort of moral equality and emotional authenticity um, that, that, that separates out uh, the, those individuals who are most, most effective in working with others. And, and that's true whether that person's working as a sponsor in recovery mutual aid or that person's an, an addictions professional. And we'll be right back um, to talk more about the culture of recovery with William White. We'll be right back. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Hey, Jack, you got a sec? Yeah, sure, come on in. Yeah, I was wondering if you... Jack, your hair's on fire. Yeah, yeah, I know. I I just need to finish this sales report, and then I'll probably, I don't know, let me lie down for a bit. But I'm, I'm sure it'll go away. But the flames are getting bigger. Sh- shouldn't I... Your hair, there's so much fire. No, 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 I'll be fine. What can I help you with? Oh, dear. Well, at least we know the sprinkler system works. You wouldn't ignore this, so why ignore the signs of a stroke? If you or someone you know suddenly experiences numbness of the face, arm, or leg, or sudden trouble speaking, seeing, or walking, don't wait to get help. Call 911 right away, because time lost is brain lost. To find out more, visit www.strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE. This message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is William White, and we're talking about the culture of recovery. And in our earlier segment, Bill, you were talking about the three different um, markers, if you will, of recovery, sobriety, global health, and citizenship. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about citizenship, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about the whole concept of recovery because um, I think that there's still some... Debate. I know there's still some debate around is opiate, if somebody is receiving opiate replacement therapy, are they truly sober and are they, quote, in recovery or um, is someone in recovery only by the fact that they are no longer um, drinking alcohol or taking medications or using other right. types of drugs? Um, that seems to be a stumbling block for us. You know, it is, in fact, uh, in terms of the efforts to come together and define recovery, that's been one of the most controversial points. But there is, having said that there's controversy, I think there is some growing consensus. And there will clearly be people that won't be happy with that consensus, but I think it's very congruent with the science. Uh, for example, uh, if you look at the Betty Ford definition where they said, Sobriety or recovery requires these three components, sobriety, global health, and citizenship. When they talked about sobriety, what they said was that, that, that individuals who had uh, experienced opioid dependence, who were now maintained uh, on appropriate doses of methadone, meaning that they'd achieved dose stabilization, or buprenorphine, or other such medications, uh, as prescribed, uh, who were not consuming other substances, uh, particularly illicit substances and alcohol, uh, that those individuals would meet the definition of sobriety by the Betty Ford Institute definition. So what we, what we are saying is that, that individuals uh, on methadone uh, or buprenorphine who are well-stabilized, who do not use sec secondary substances, and who also meet that second and third criteria, those individuals would be considered in recovery. So in your opinion, why do you think we still struggle with this issue? Well, I think, I mean, part of it is is there's just been this uh, incredible degree of misunderstanding and stigma attached to, to medication-assisted recovery in general, and methadone in particular. So... We still really equate um, uh, method, methadone with heroin, uh, the experience of methadone maintenance we equate with, with uh, heroin, active heroin addiction, and, and those, are, those are two radically different experiences for most people, particularly people who effectively, uh, have effectively achieved dose stabilization. We have, for example, as, as is typical in the same way that, that uh, that most people, the, the people that we see on television, the image of recovery is the celebrity who's relapsing every other week and being, being shuttled off once again to rehab. 
I mean, that's kind of a stereotypical version of recovery that denies the reality that we have hundreds and thousands, if not millions of individuals in long-term stable recovery. And the same is true for methadone. We, we base the image of methadone on those non-stabilized individuals who were on the nod, uh, you know, peddling drugs outside in front of a methadone clinic. And what we don't see with that is the very large number of individuals who've achieved very effective long-term stabilization and quality of life through methadone. So, I mean, we've still got a very, very long ways to go. We, we have, for example, large numbers of people who are beginning to step forward and put a face and voice on recovery of all varieties. And I, I think we probably aren't going to change the face of medication-assisted recovery until we get a vanguard of recovering individuals and families step forward and really tell their stories to this culture and announce their presence in this culture. You know, it's, um, you know, we, we think about, and I believe that um, alcoholism and addiction are illnesses that they're, they're biologically based if, if they are, there's other legs on the stool as well. But, you know, we, we understand what happens in the brain when someone drinks or uses drugs, and I can't think of any other chronic illness that we would be debating, um, you know, is, is a diabetic, you know, stable if they're taking insulin or if they're just, you know, using um, an orally assisted medication or they're just doing, managing it with their diet. It just boggles my mind that, um, you know, that we, we can look at this as a disease, but then debate treatment of it to the extent that we do. Yeah, there's, uh, there, there, there's sort of two sides to this that you can play. One is historically you can say where did this anti-medication bias come from in the history of addiction treatment and, and there's really good justification for it. Uh, we've had a lot of very inappropriate things we've done by way of drug treatments in, in the name of treating drug addiction. Uh, in my researches for slaying the dragon, I stumbled onto you know, uh, episodes where physicians were prescribing pounds of cocaine hydrochloride for the treatment of morphine addiction. And as we came forward into the 20th century, I mean, we had um, um, medication-based treatments that really created grave injury and in, many, in some cases death to individuals all in the name of treatment. So there's that whole side. So I think, I think we need to be extremely cautious uh, suspect, uh, very rigorous in terms of the scientific evaluation of any medications used in the treatment of addiction. The flip side of that is if you look historically and say, you know, what are some of the things when we look back in retrospect that we look back and say, what on earth were people thinking of back then to do such harmful or, or, or such basic things they didn't understand and it's quite possible in another 50 years even, or even less, we will look back on the attitudes that we have towards, towards medication right now in treatment, particularly the, the management of, of chronic opioid dependence, and, and look back on ourselves as if we were in the dark ages. I think history will judge us pretty harshly for those attitudes. Well, and it's a nice segue into kind of the stigma and discrimination that permeates people who experience substance use disorders. I mean, not only are we, as a treatment profession, kind of um, have our own issues around mm -hmm. that, but then we also have um, society in general that um, 
also permeate stigma and discrimination. Yeah, the level the level of stereotypes that still continue um, c- continue to be pretty remarkable to me. But but I see those changing fairly rapidly. I was thinking in terms of my professional lifetime. Uh, when I entered the field in the late 1960s, for example, uh, the, the, the dominant image of the alcoholic in the United States, States was a skidrow alcoholic. And, what I, and I was thinking of, a, you know, look at what's happened to that. In 1976, uh, the National Council on Alcoholism uh, sponsored a thing called Operation Understanding, and they had 52 uh, very prominent Americans from that era, uh, uh, Dick Van Dyke and Gary Moore and Buzz Aldrin and the list goes on and on uh, from all walks of life who kind of stood up and publicly declared their recovery, long-term recovery from alcoholism. And it was a kind of galvanizing moment that kind of really challenged those kind of stereotypes. Well, imagine in 76 that involved 52 people. And last year in recovery month, last September, uh, there were more than 40,000 recovering people and their families and allies marching uh, kind of in, in recovery celebration events across the country. So I think a lot of those stereotypes are, 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 are dying. I think kind of what we figured out in the recovery movement is it's sort of like cancer. Uh, people, attitudes towards c- cancer really didn't change that deep, Stigma, where you almost couldn't say the word in polite society. Uh, that really didn't change until most people in the culture uh, came, to, came to personally know someone who had recovered from cancer. And then those activities changed dramatically. And, of course, we had people like Betty Ford, for example, who really put a face and voice on both cancer and on, on alcoholism and chemical dependency. So when we began to get some of those you know, charismatic, kinetic figures, uh, some of those attitudes really began to shift. Um, and, I think the, and I think through the 70s that was very much the case. And then in the 1980s and, and, and particularly through the 80s and mid-90s, we kind of went through a period of re-stigmatizing, re, uh, demedicalizing, recriminalizing, uh, transferring lots of addicted people to the criminal justice system, and those, those rather horrific conditions uh, really triggered the rise of this grassroots recovery advocacy movement that, I, that I've briefly referenced. And I think that movement is making very significant progress in beginning to challenge some of those kind of stereotypes we've been talking about. Well, I know that advocacy is, is vital to, um, you know, to the future of our profession, to the future of... Um, treatment and um, we'll be back on our next segment to talk more about advocacy with Bill White. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh, uh, 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 there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Oh, well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom <laughs> and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Oh, go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. Uh, Shoot! Get away! Play with them, dear. Hornets hate high-pitched noises. Yeah, uh, try not to swallow too many. Get away! Knock that nest out of the park. You wouldn't treat your child like an adult, so why put them in adult seat belts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. I can't see! Are they biting me? Oh, that's so cute. No, honey, hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. Ow! For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back thanking me for my concerns and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it and she flips out saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who will work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, for our final segment with uh, William White and the... Before we went to commercial, we were talking a little bit about, beginning to talk about advocacy and recovery advocacy and um, and how vital that is to eliminating stigma and discrimination. And, you know, advocacy is something that I know um, NADAC, which is the Association for Addiction Professionals, has been involved in for years, having the Illinois Political Action uh, Committee that's addiction-related, mm-hmm. although NACAP is starting one. Um, soon, but the whole idea of going and advocating for um, for treatment, for 
um, their laws. Um, sometimes we, these treatment professionals are being looked at as being self-serving because there hasn't been a voice, there hasn't been a law, there hasn't been a NAMI for people. There hasn't been a large um, lobby of um, cancer survivors that go and um, advocate on the behalf of, of themselves. So, you know, advocacy has always been something that we've um, kind of danced around and um, so recovery advocacy is just beginning to come into its own. Yeah, and I, you know, you, what you just expressed is very apt because there's a, there's kind of a tension almost between the dis- differences between recovery advocacy and treatment advocacy or advocacy on behalf of a particular profession. For example, when the, the old recovery advocates, and I mean the, the generation of recovery advocates in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, who's, many of them spent their whole lives advocating to lay the foundation for addiction treatment. And their vision was of this large circle, which was this sort of ever-growing recovery community and an understanding that some people couldn't get inside that circle without help and or stay in the, inside that circle. So they conceptualized this thing called professional treatment and really spent their lives advocating legislatively and, of course, that came through in 1970 and, and, and set the stage for the explosive growth of addiction treatment. Now, some of those individuals that were still around or the youngsters who were part of that movement who are now aging individuals, now today they look at the world their work brought and what they see is a multi-billion dollar treatment industry that, sees, that is, it tended to see recovery as a kind of afterthought. And their position is that, um, that addiction treatment has become disconnected from this larger and more enduring process of addiction recovery, particularly in light of forces like managed care that pushed addiction treatment into ever briefer uh, periods of intervention so that it's more of a kind of emergency room model uh, as opposed to a model that really supports long-term recovery today. So um, what part of what those those advocates are really pushing for is to, to, to get addiction treatment institutions less preoccupied with their issues of institutional status and institutional profit and get them refocused on uh, that the vision is really about long-term recovery and there's simply a, a means of technical support for that that some people, not all, need. Um, and so you have, re- you have recovery advocates who, um, who will advocate uh, with professionals for, on behalf of treatment, but also want to hold treatment accountable for, for, for reconnecting itself to this recovery support process. So, and and I, I get that same sense. I've, I've obviously been advocating for addiction treatment for more than four decades at this point, and sometimes I'm called in and, and I... T- talk to a county board or a township board or a United Way group or a state legislature, and, and they say to me, you know, the only time we see representatives from addiction treatment is when they're here with their hands out, meaning that they're there to request money, and they convert everything into issues related to money. And so I think we've lost some of our image and our status to, to talk with moral authority, and that's why what's powerful about the recovery advocacy movement is these are individuals who are standing up talking about the needs in their communities 
who don't have any vested financial interest. So, so we have some real differences between those individuals uh, compared to individuals who represent treatment interest in all the the thousands and millions and on occasion billions of dollars that are involved in that. I know, but my, my first reaction to those billions of dollars, I don't know where they're going because most places that I know, people are working very long hours for very low pay. And um, But that's the treatment professional. Yeah, if you look at, yeah, if you look at that in terms of, of individual workers, and at the same time if you look at, at addiction treatment as a system, um, it is a multi-billion dollar system of care at this point in time. So, I mean, you can imagine for families who are, whose children are being placed on unconscionably long waiting lists, I think they have a right to ask, you know, where is, where is that money going? And, and, and is it getting the resources where they need to be? And why are they having to wait so long to, to get their child into treatment? Right. No, I, I agree with that. It's just, I guess, like all other forms of health care, that um, there's, it's going somewhere because the people who work there don't get the money and the people who need the treatment don't get access to it. So, which is why yeah. I guess we're going to reform health care in the next three or four months. Yeah, and I think we're, seeing, we're also seeing an interesting thing where uh, in, individuals and families in recovery, I think, are are becoming a new force for... Uh, for really reforming addiction treatment. Uh, we're seeing them really push for a kind of radical redesign of moving addiction from kind of an acute model of stabilization, uh, whether we're talking a few sessions of outpatient or whether we're talking a 15-day or a 30-day inpatient program that's got a beginning, middle, and an end, uh, and then people are told goodbye, have a great life. Uh, shifting from that kind of model to to really a model of sustained recovery management, and so so those voices, um, I think they're gaining steam, and I think we're going to see some dramatic changes in the in the very design of addiction treatment that will make it much more recovery focused in, in the years to come. Can you expand on it a little bit more? In, in what ways? Yeah, I see. For example. Um, Right now, the, the, we, the people that we engage in treatment are people that generally are entering treatment, uh, most of them, at least more than half, on a non-voluntary basis. They, we, are, we, we are engaging them at a very late stage of their addictions. Uh, we, we're not doing a particularly good job of retaining them. We graduate less than half. Uh, half of individuals who come into treatment complete it. Uh, we connect them very poorly to recovery communities. Um, we, we provide almost no continuing care to speak of, and we get very high relapse rates in the in the 12 months following treatment. And of those who who relapse following treatment, a very high relapse rate in the first 90 days. At a time most of us as professionals really aren't in their life, we've finished the course of therapy that we've had them involved in. So the, the kind of shift that's underway is really to push addiction treatment towards much more assertive levels of early engagement to get people at earlier stages of addiction, uh, strat- enhanced strategies of engagement and retention, and in particular, uh, very assertive strategies to post-treatment monitoring and support uh, assertive linkage to communities of recovery and early reintervention when needed. 
Um, I want to thank you, Bill, for taking the time to be on our show today and enlightening us on the culture of recovery. And and we know that this is the way for the future. And thank you for all that you've done to educate us and to keep our history alive. Okay, so thank, thank you. you, Mary. It's been enjoyable. Have a good week, everybody. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.